You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. And again, good morning. It's great to see all of you who are in the room here and those of you watching, worshiping online, either listening to this, watching it here and now or later. Glad that you are with us as well. So just one more thing before we dive into God's Word this morning, and that is next weekend, next Sunday, when we gather for worship, we're going to have a card on the back resource table for you that has 40 days of readings within Scripture and is a 40-day prayer focus for us. You know, we continue to explore the spiritual disciplines, the spiritual practices together, especially in our communities at Grace, and we want to be a church of prayer. We believe in the power of prayer, the impact of prayer. And believe it or not, not this Wednesday, but next Wednesday, we'll be about 40 days out from Easter. It's that close. And so we want to take 40 days to prepare ourselves for celebrating the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So we're just putting that out there as a primer, and you can look for that next week. And for those of you who are with us online, we'll have that available for downloading from our website. So That being said, we're going to shift gears now as we prepare to dive into this incredible book of Jeremiah. So this last week, something happened with Jamie and me that was just a celebration, really. It was so rich for us personally, and some of you know about this. But in December was our 30th wedding anniversary, proof that Jamie is long-suffering and perseverant, right? (laughs) That being said... Our son um, has a really full life. He, uh, he goes to school almost full-time, and he works full-time, and his job um, occupies him from about mid-afternoon till about 10 o'clock every night. So he always gets home really late, and we always call him, or he calls us, and we talk to him on his drive home. He comes all the way from Sherwood, so he's got a long drive at 10 o'clock at night. So there's always plenty of time to catch up about the day and what have you. And we usually are awake. We usually wait up for him when he gets home at about 10, 45, 11. And so this last week in particular, he said, Mom, Dad, don't go to sleep. I'm really excited. I've got something to show you, so make sure that you're awake. And we said, okay, and so we did. And our son bursts through the door of our bedroom, and he shows us this, and this is the picture that we took together. And to give you a closer look, it's this. So for the last seven months, our son has been cross-stitching a picture of, from our wedding in celebration of our 30th anniversary. My friends, there are 26,800 individual stitches in that. For se- yeah, isn't that cool? And he did not get that ability from his dad. I would be one stitch and out, one and done. That would be me. But he has persevered and been really sneaky, by the way. He's hid this from us for, you know, seven months. But every spare moment he could find, he has been putting this together for us. And it's just going to be something so rich for Jamie and I to have. We're getting it framed, and that will become a very, very special, special part of our family and means so much to us. So Jamie um, posted this on Facebook, and we don't post a lot of stuff on Facebook, but she posted on Facebook, that's how some of you know about this, and honestly, I was stunned by not just the number of folks who responded to this, but who these folks were. I mean, there were former middle school, high school students of Jamie's and mine way, way back some 30 years ago in our student ministry days, folks from 
college who we both went to school with. I mean, it was just rich and it was just amazing. And just seeing these relationships surface again and, and where some of these folks are at from, you know, following up with, with what they posted, what have you, it just reminded Jamie and I of our faith journey with the Lord together and individually. You know, some great memories and some great times of, of building our faith and other times represented by these friends and these memories that were really difficult. And you know, it's easy to talk about faith, really, when things are going well. But in so many instances and cases, our faith deepens and grows, really, when things are hard, when there's struggle, when there's difficulty. And this morning, we're going to look at, once again, this reality of saving faith. What does that mean? What does that look like? And we're going to see it in the life of Jeremiah. And just to set the table a little bit with where we're going, as we come to Jeremiah 16 and 17 now, it, it's, it's a really eye-opening couple of chapters. Because again, to reset things with where we were last week with Sean, and if you haven't heard that sermon, I, I really encourage you to go back and listen to it. It was an epic message. All these sermons build on one another as we go through the book of Jeremiah. But that being said, he was helping us recognize the reality again that this is a time of significant and necessary judgment of the people of God. Because they have been living out their sinfulness, their brokenness in just horrific ways, hurting themselves, hurting one another hurting God, of course, and his love for them. And this has been going on for hundreds of years, for generations. And for generations, prophets have come on behalf of God, calling them away from that, calling them to something better, calling them to trust and obey God, and they refuse over and over again. Jeremiah himself had a ministry of over 30 years where he called the people to repentance, where he called them away from the ugliness and awfulness they were settling for. And now things are going to go from bad to worse. And I'm just going to warn you that this opening chapter is, it's, it's pretty dark. And yet embedded within it and embedded in both these chapters is some timely, practical, necessary wisdom for you and me on what saving faith looks like. So let's, let's dive into this amazing book once again together in this amazing chapter. So if you begin Jeremiah 16, this is one of the first verses you read, and this is God directing Jeremiah he says, you must not marry and have sons or daughters in this place, which in and of itself is a remarkable statement because you needed family. In an agrarian culture, you needed to have kids to literally help you put food on the table, to work the fields, to, to contribute to the family and basically to get by. And not only that, but there was this expectation far, far higher than even our culture where that was what you did was you, you got married. And if you didn't get married, there's a problem there. Why, why, aren't you, why aren't you married? And so for the Lord to ask this is shocking. It's like the Lord is asking him not to get married. And it goes on to quickly explain why. For this is what the Lord says about the sons and daughters born in this land and about the women who are their mothers and the men who are their fathers. Catch this. They will die of deadly diseases. They will not be mourned or buried, but will be like dung lying on the ground. They will perish by the sword and famine, and their dead bodies will become food for the birds and the wild animals. That is an awful horrific picture of the future, and it's a future that's coming. 
as God rightfully judges after hundreds and hundreds of years of warnings his people who continue to refuse to trust and obey him and to wrong him and wrong one another. That's, that's heavy, hard stuff, but it actually gets worse than that. God goes on to tell him this, for this is what the Lord says, do not enter a house where there is a funeral meal. Do not go to mourn or show sympathy because I have withdrawn my blessing, my love and my pity from this people, declares the Lord. Now, in our culture, a memorial or a funeral, if you are connected to someone in any way, that's a really high value, right? That is a time where we come together as a community to comfort one another, to celebrate someone's life. Unless you have really good reason, for most of us, you're there. You don't miss a memorial or a funeral of someone you love. And yet God is now telling him, yeah, don't go to memorials or funerals either. They were even a higher value in that community than they are to us today. And again, this is, this is a shocking statement, but there's actually more. He says, and do not enter a house where there is feasting and sit down to eat and drink. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, before your eyes and in your days, I will bring an end to the sounds of joy and gladness and to the voices of the bride and bridegroom in this place. Another shocking statement. If there's a celebration, if there's a party going on, don't you go to it. You know, Super Bowl, that national holiday that we all celebrated last weekend that many of you gathered together for, yeah, stop going to those. And weddings, which are a communal experience where the celebration and party that lasted for a wedding was over a week long, yeah, you're not to show up to those either. Aren't you glad you came to church today? What a, what a message of encouragement, right? Jeez, can this get any darker? Don't have kids. Don't get married because they're not going to survive what's coming. Don't go to memorials or funerals. Don't go to weddings. Don't go to anything communal because you don't want to associate with this community anymore. You're going to stand out, and consequently, you're going to be left out. Why? Why would God ask this of Jeremiah? And it tells us why. When you tell these people all this and they ask you, well, why has the Lord decreed such a great disaster against us? What wrong have we done? What sin have we committed against the Lord our God? Then say to them, it's because your ancestors forsook me, declares the Lord, and followed other gods and served and worshiped them. They forsook me and did not keep my law. What? That's so unfair, God. You're punishing us for what our ancestors did. Look what follows this. But you have behaved more wickedly than your ancestors. See how all of you are following the stubbornness of your evil hearts instead of obeying me. And if you want to know what they were doing, go back and listen to any of our prior sermons. They were worse than their ancestors, and their ancestors were really, really bad. Horrific, awful. And Jeremiah's told, don't associate with them anymore. Don't be in community with them anymore. How hard must that have been for Jeremiah? You ever been left out of a celebration that you should have been a part of, that you wanted to be a part of? Ever been overlooked, left out? 
of something important? I mean, this had to be profoundly difficult for Jeremiah. But right out of the gate, he models to us something that is so important when it comes to saving faith. Saving faith at his essence is believing that whatever God says can be trusted. You want a simple definition for faith? Here it is. Believing that whatever God says can absolutely be trusted. That true for you? Do you believe that whatever God says can be trusted? How about when it's hard? How about when it feels unreasonable? How about when you don't understand? Will you trust and obey God then? Some of you know exactly what this is about. You were trying to trust and obey God and to do the right thing is the profoundly difficult thing. You need to set a boundary in that toxic relationship. And man, you don't want to with all the conflict that's going to come from that. Or you need to have a really hard conversation and you just wish there was a way out and you've put it off and put it off and you don't want to anymore. Or you know that if you live the way God is calling you to live, you are going to invite criticism. You're going to invite gossip from the people around you. Will, will you do it anyway? What is that hard thing for you? that God's asking you to trust him with right now. Jeremiah models for us how to do that, to absolutely believe that whatever God says can be trusted, even when it doesn't feel like it, even when you don't want to do it, even when you don't understand it, even when it's just really hard and no one else will understand. Do you have that kind of trust in the Lord? Which begs the question, and it's a very necessary one. Well, why would you do that? Or to go a little deeper, is it really worth it? Is it really worth it to trust God when it costs you? And this amazing passage declares this incredible truth that we have to remember. I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. We trust and obey God in all circumstances, not just the ones that we want to pick and choose from, because God rewards obedience. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God will reward you for trusting and obeying him? You better believe it. Because God's word declares that over and over and over again. And in fairness, so many of us have no appreciation for what it means to be rewarded by God. You know, we buy into this incredibly dumb image. I have no idea where it came from. The heaven is about being a little angel with clouds floating around a cloud, you know, strumming a harp. If that's what God's reward is about, yeah, I'm not so interested. And that's not... We don't know exactly what God's rewards are going to be, but go with me here for a minute. If God truly is God, if he is the creator, if he invented the whole idea of rewards, don't you think he knows how to give good ones? Amazing ones? Ones that we can't even comprehend? Why does that not motivate us more? And sometimes those rewards actually come in this life. 
I think many times, maybe fairly most of the time, they're going to come in the life to come. But going back to that Facebook post of my wife and the folks who responded, man, there were some former students and some former, I say former friends just because we've lost contact, but we were in college together. We go way, way back. They said some incredibly gracious, loving things about the arc of Jamie's life and mine. That, that we have loved the Lord. And again, we're not perfect. You know better than anybody. In the years we've been together, I am not perfect. But there was a reward in people being able to say, you know what, you love Jesus and it shows. Here you are 30 years later, you still love each other and you still love Jesus. Yeah, we do. That was a reward in and of itself. And so often we just breeze by these incredible promises that God gives us. That even when it is difficult, even when it's hard and we choose to trust and obey him, he's going to reward that, if not in this life, in the life to come. Do you believe that? I, I hope you do because it's a reality. And so we have talked about this as saving faith. Not just faith, but saving faith. What, what is that what is that about? What is saving faith about? Well, it goes to what's being talked about once again in this passage. God goes on to say, Judah's sin, his people's sin, is engraved with an iron tool, inscribed with a flint point on the tablets of their hearts and on the horns of their altars. Even their children remember their altars and Asherah poles beside the spreading trees and on the high hills. This people is so broken. They are so selfish. They are so bent inward. They are so busy at wronging themselves, wronging one another, wronging God, that even their children know this is our history. This is the way things have always been. But let's go a little deeper into what this is saying here. Sin, our proclivity, our inclination, apart from right relationship with God, to be bent inward, to be selfish, self-focused in what we do, what we don't do, in our motives, in our thoughts, in our values. It's so pervasive, so prevalent, so deep, you can't change it and neither can I. Not without some real help. And to understand this image, you have to understand that in the ancient Near East, the way you wanted to make something permanent, if you wanted to make something permanent for generations to see, you wrote it with a flint knife on a tablet, on stone. That's what you did. And the reason we know this is we have some artifacts, thousands of years old, that testify to this very reality. When I was in Israel with some of you, um, and Jamie and I got to go on that amazing trip that you sent us on in 2016. We went to a, a town called Caesarea Maritimus. And there's a, ton of, there's a ton of ancient Near East cities and towns called Caesarea. So they had to differentiate them from one another. And this one was called Caesarea Maritimus because it sits right on the Mediterranean Sea. And profoundly beautiful. And for many years, scholars, especially unbelieving scholars did not believe there was a Pontius Pilate. If you remember the death, burial, and resurrection, which we'll be talking about here in just a number of weeks and celebrating together of Jesus, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, it talks about a Roman governor by the name of Pontius Pilate who played a pivotal role in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. 
until about the 1960s, there was this incredible pushback by most of the archaeological world that no person like that ever existed. Never had found anything that proved his existence. His name was only recorded in the Bible, and so therefore he was dismissed as being a fictional character until in the 1960s in an amphitheater that still stands today. It's the largest, most intact amphitheater, if I remember correctly, from the ancient world, that, in that part of the world at least, that's still standing. They found a stone that had been used to fill in one of the gaps in this amphitheater, as it was crumbling, it fell apart, this stone fell down, and on the back of it was written some writing, and this is what it said. Now, I know you can't read that. I can't either. But in there is the name Pontius Pilate. And it was something that was written in his honor, and it now sits in a museum in Jerusalem, and there's now no more debate about if a Pontius Pilate existed or not, because we have his name written in stone. And it dates back thousands of years. The point being that if you wanted something to last, you wrote it in stone. And this is helping us understand that sin runs so deep, it's like it's written on our hearts. And therefore, that's why we need new ones. Because we can't change it on our own. And unfortunately, in our culture, we've so diluted the notion of sin that we kind of think about it in terms of this bell curve where, you know, there's good people and there's bad people, and as long as you're better than those people, then, then you're doing okay. And the problem with good is good isn't good enough because it's not a deep enough change. The hope and the promise of the Bible, of Jesus Christ, is that he will come into your life and he will change you from the inside out, and he will make you not just a different person, but a new one by giving you a new heart because this heart isn't changeable on your own. And to help us understand this, there's this amazing analogy in chapter 17, and this is how this is drawn out. This is what the Lord says, "'Cursed is the one who trusts in man, "'who draws strength from mere flesh "'and whose heart turns away from the Lord,' which is where we all start, apart from right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That person will be like a bush in the wastelands. They won't see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in the parched places of the desert in a salt land where no one lives. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought, and it never fails to bear fruit. And I love imagery. I'm a visual person, and so this is the image of that first example. This is describing a tree that is twisted and stunted and ugly and whose roots aren't very sustaining versus the tree that is planted by this stream of water that's big and beautiful and strong and enduring. And we can, we can do some of the business with this visual imagery and the truths that are being proclaimed here. Roots, we know, anchor. They anchor a plant or they anchor a tree and they draw out nutrients. And so at the end of the day, the root determines the fruit. And at the end of the day, sin is about where your roots are. It's all about where your roots are rooted. You see, my friends, 
The question isn't if you have faith. That's why I didn't title this sermon faith. Everyone has faith. That's not the issue. The real issue is where is your faith? Or to run with our analogy here, where are your roots? What have you sunk your roots into? Because the essence of sin, the essence of our broken, fallen human condition apart from help from God through Jesus Christ is that your roots of your life will be set down into something or someone other than God. So, what's the problem with that? Well, let's take this for a test drive. Where are your roots this morning? Or to back up, and I know this is a deep question for a Sunday morning, but we are in church and we do business with things. So, what are your life goals? What's the focus of your life? When I was a kid, I had two goals for my life. I wanted to be a dad, and I wanted to be a husband. And I got those in the wrong order. Let's try being a husband first and then being a dad. Want to be a husband, want to be a dad. And then I met Jamie in high school. And she was my high school sweetheart, my college sweetheart. You know we've been married for 30 years. We dated for almost six, so we've been together for 36 years. And she's a blessing to me. She enriches my life. Can't imagine my life without her. But we do fight at times. And I don't ever seem to be wrong. I don't know what the problem is, but I never seem to be at fault, right? Yeah, and you all know me, and that categorically is not true. But we have a good marriage, but we work hard at it, as any good marriage has to do. And God blessed us with kids. We've got three of them. You've already seen our son, for those of you who don't know him. And we've got two daughters, and Kylan, our son, is in the middle. Oldest daughter, youngest daughter. They are a joy and a delight. Love to spend time with them. Can't get enough time with them. Our family continues to grow. Now I have a son-in-law who's like a son. Love to spend time with him. We used to tell our kids, if there were a thousand kids in the room, we would choose you. And it's, and it's true. Most days. And I love being a dad. And I love being a dad to young adult kids. Every season, if you are blessed to be a parent, has its own struggles and joys. Certainly. And they're not enough. You see, in and of themselves... My incredible wife, my wonderful kids, they're not enough. They, they don't complete me, even though I got what I wanted. There are needs that they will never fulfill in my life because they can't. They weren't designed to. And yes, I have roots that go deeply into them relationally, but not my tap root. You see, the reality with this analogy that's being given to us is this, that if you don't have your roots in God, you will be like a bush that will not see prosperity when it comes. Meaning that if your roots are into marriage, if you are defining your life by your marriage, you may get the most wonderful marriage you could ever have, and it will not be enough. You build your life on your kids exclusively, 
and it will not be enough. You make your goal money and you set out to get money and you actually get what you want, you become a millionaire, you win the lottery, you're really successful in business, you will experience what John D. Rockefeller experienced and what everybody else experiences, whether they're honest with it about it or not. John D. Rockefeller, multimillionaire tycoon, was asked one time, how much is enough money? And do you know what his famous quote was? Profoundly honest. I don't know, but just a little bit more. Uh Uh-huh, exactly. If money is what you set your roots in, that's all you'll have, and it won't be enough. Maybe it's your career. Man, you finally, after all these years, you go to school, you work harder, you work in that trade, you jump through all these hoops, you pay this incredible price, you finally get what you want, and you realize it's not enough. Plug retirement in there, plug health in there. We can plug any good thing in there, and when you get it, what this verse is proclaiming, the reality that's being emphasized here is that if your roots aren't in God, but they're in these other things, exclusively so, it will not be enough. It will not complete you. And you'll be like a tumbleweed. Versus this other reality of this picture of this tree planted by a stream. And when the heat comes, its leaves are always green. It has no worries in the year of of drought. This is so profoundly significant as well because it talks about droughts and droughts come and some of you are in some right now man you've got a difficulty you've got a heartache you have a loss you have pain you have frustration you have things that happen in this broken world and there's really no way around them and what this is saying is when those things come your way at the end of the day you'll be okay doesn't mean it will be easy doesn't mean you won't do battle with things like depression and discouragement and disappointment. But it means you'll be able to persevere. It means you can even find joy in those things. And I am adamant about this and sold out on this reality and believe in this so much because I see you live it. I see you live this reality out for those of you who know and love Jesus every day. The elders and I meet twice a month, and we always begin our time praying for you. You are prayed for regularly and often by our, by our leadership, by our staff and elders. And the elders in particular, we go through something that Pastor Jerry Smith, our community care pastor, compiles for us on a, on a regular basis. We call it the pastoral care update, and it's five pages long currently. Sometimes a little longer, almost never a little shorter. It's five pages with just a sentence or two of description of what people are up against, especially in regard to health, but even in life circumstances in their lives. And I'm not going to give you names, but these are just a representation of some of what we see. This 94-year-old lives with her daughter. She's in good spirits, but she's ready to be with Jesus, has many struggles, many difficulties. She's part of our online community. He has had colon cancer for a little over eight years that has metastasized to his lungs and bones. He's being treated as stage four, feels fine, but has exceeded any medical predictions of life expectancy. Saw this person this morning in person. This next one, she has a trifecta of illnesses that sap her energy, AFib, fibromyalgia, central apnea. Recently, she has had a renewed energy push and glad to have the ability to do the things she loves to do. She's part of our online community. 
He is in intense and debilitating back pain. Surgery is an option, but one they're hoping to avoid at this time. Can't imagine what daily life is like for him. And he's here this morning. She's all but bedridden and in constant pain, unable to eat or sleep regularly. Recent hospitalizations seem to be giving some answers. She's also contracted pneumonia as well, which has hospitalized her for a couple of days, and she has been in and out of the hospital, in fact, more in the hospital than out in the last handful of years. She's part of our online community as well. I've given you a sample of five pages of incredibly difficult, hard things, droughts, to use the language of this passage that these folks are all enduring. And you know what the common denominator with all of them is? They all know the Lord. They have sunk their roots roots into, into God. And the way that happens is you allow the Lord to replant you. A tree can't replant itself. We totally get that. A bush can't do that on its own. Yeah, that's exactly the point. You need God's help. And God doesn't want to make you into a nice person. He wants to make you into a new person. He doesn't want to just give you the same old heart. He wants to give you a new heart, a new core of you that in your deepest desire, not the strongest desire in the moment because we all still do battle with sin even after we know Jesus, but your deepest desire in the moment is actually to trust and obey him because that's what you were hardwired to do. You were designed, created, fashioned, plumbed, primed, prepared to be rooted to God. And in our brokenness, we send those roots into other things that ultimately will never fulfill us, never satisfy us, never produce what we think they will. We all start out as that bush. And God does something for us that we can't do for ourselves. It says that he helps us through his Holy Spirit, through his presence, to get this, to understand this, and then to do something about it. And what do we do about it? We don't try harder. We invite him into our lives. And he replants us. The Bible calls it giving us a new heart. Jesus also described it as being born again. But it doesn't just happen. You have to respond. And my fear for some of you, my concern for some of you, is that you are here, which is good. I'm not concerned you're here. Glad you're here. You're here. You go through a lot of what the world would say are the religious motions. You know, you serve or you give or you read your Bible or you pray. You know, you do your best to live a quote-unquote good life. But there's never been a defining moment or a defining season where you have responded to and received Jesus Christ into your heart. Is it possible to be online or to be in person in church and to not know Jesus? Yeah, it is. It absolutely is. And so for those of you who aren't sure about this, there is no better time to receive Jesus Christ into your life to let the Lord replant you, give you a new heart, give you new hope, give you new perspective, give you a new empowerment to live life the way he always designed it to be lived by you than this morning. I'm going to invite our worship team to come forward and we're going to respond in music worship. And some of you need to do exactly this and you know who you are. Not because I know who you are, but because God does. And his spirit is speaking to you this morning and he is telling you, yeah, this makes sense. And yep, you need to do this. And this is what you've been looking for. This is where you need to send your roots. And and you need to. 
because you're so missing out on a life of blessing and hope and joy. And for those of us who have done this, this is a reminder once again to remember the goodness of God. This song talks about God's goodness pursuing us, and that's exactly what he does. He pursues us. He calls us away from selfishness and sinfulness and brokenness, and he promises and actually gives us something so much better, so much more fulfilling, so much more enduring, so much more nourishing, because it's what you were designed for. Right relationship with him, right relationship with one another, right relationship with yourself, right relationship with land. It's the way God always intended things to be, and it's yours to have. And many of you have that. So remember that and celebrate that. And standing off to the side here, for those of you in person, is going to be our Daryl Broadsword. And um, he'll be standing right over here by this lamp. And if it's not him, it'll be me. And if you want to get baptized and you've never been baptized, we would love to baptize you this morning. The water's warm. We've got the tank filled. We've got Dave Christensen set up to be our John the Baptist. He's one of our elders. We would love to dunk you this morning because... If you have chosen to receive Jesus into your life, then you show that through baptism. Some of you have never done that. We have clothes for you. We have towels for you. We have warm water for you. You have no excuse. We have systematically tried to remove every excuse so you can respond in trust and obedience to Jesus. Come talk to either me or Daryl over here. We'll get you dunked before the service is over. And if it's not this service, we'll do it in the next. But let's sing and worship together and remember the goodness of God that pursues us and that changes us. Thank you for joining us for Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.